Hello and welcome to the Tess English Teaching Podcast. My name is Jamie Tom, I'm an English teacher and author of Slow Teaching, Finding Calm, Clarity and Impact in the Classroom. This month's episode is at the very heart of what happens in our classrooms on a daily basis. It appears deceptively simple. How can we teach reading better in our classrooms? Stephen King suggested that books are uniquely portable magic. The reality is that they, and reading skills, are indeed magic in terms of their impact on life opportunities. Those who cannot access reading material struggle in all aspects of education and in their lives outside the confines of the school walls. The fact that young people are still leaving school without the ability to confidently read is of course a huge issue in our educational system. And it's an issue that that I, like lots of English teachers, find my literature degree doesn't provide the answers. Instead, the authors of Thinking Reading, Diane and James Murphy, can begin to help us find solutions. They've devoted 50 years of experience in education between them to solving this reading crisis, starting the hugely influential Thinking Reading programme in schools. And it's a programme that's had a transformative impact in helping young people become more proficient and confident in reading skills. In our wide-ranging conversation, we discuss what individual classroom teachers can do in their everyday practice to support reading development, and how our schools can build effective intervention programmes for our most vulnerable readers, and how we can begin to solve the issue that keeps us English teachers wide awake at night. How can we get our students reading more? I hope you find this episode useful. I hope it goes some way in assisting how we approach the teaching of reading. James and Diane Murphy, thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're welcome. and We're really glad to be here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to uh, the next 45 minutes or so unpicking your wonderful book, Thinking Reading. Um, okay, now I'm gonna. I think this is this is uh, as you know, huge advocates of reading. I think this is, this question might be quite stressful for you. Um, but what I'm interested in, first of all, is uh, if you could pick one literary character, okay, to uh, be your defining favourite, who would that character be, and why? Well, for me, that's not difficult at all. It would have to be Elizabeth Bennet. Um, I just love Elizabeth Bennet. I think she's sharp, she's witty, um, she's definitely her own person. Um, She's embarrassed by her very gauche mother, but she's never actually really dishonouring of her, and I really like that. Um, She doesn't manage to be demeaned by the silliness of her younger sisters, and she's got a lovely warm relationship with Jane. And You've got to love somebody who refuses Mr. Collins. I mean, (laughs) who could marry a man like that? Lucas, apparently. Well, yes, indeed. But but also um, um, the way she stands up um, to Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And, you know, I think she comes out of that just so marvellously. I mean, there's just – she's such a complex character and just so likeable. I've never tired of her. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's a great Good. choice. That's a great choice. Thank you for that, Dan. Great yeah. choice. I'm kind of. I, I have to say Hamlet because I've named my blog after him. But 
or based on it. But but Hamlet is my favourite character in literature, and I guess that's because again he is um, a very complex character. He's a very uh, endearing and admirable person, um, but he is caught by his own uh, flaws and and isn't happy about them. So he's incredibly ambitious in some ways in terms of uh, the standards he wants to achieve. Uh, but he knows that they're unachievable. Um, so there's, you know, that's where the inevitability of the tragedy comes from, I think. I see as well, James, you managed to uh, fit in quite a few Hamlet references in the book. I was reading your part about uh, the sort of um, how nice has changed, how the, the use of the word nice has changed, and uh, mm. that reference to it as well. It was, it was really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, the work that you do in literature naturally feeds into the kind of thinking that we're doing about reading. Mm. Um, and one of the big problems that we have in schools, which we'll probably touch on later, is that most English teachers actually have a literature background. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in secondary school, we have virtually no preparation uh, for actually helping students with reading difficulties mm. um, because the assumption is that we won't have students like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, we ha- there are a lot of students like that. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that, that leads us in very nicely to um, just thinking a little bit about your own background in education because I know you've got over you know 50 years experience uh, in education and uh, you know I'm really interested where that drive and motivation to deal with the reading situation in schools came from and, and your own background in, in education. Uh, I uh, trained to be a teacher in New Zealand although I must say that despite my accent I was born in Britain and I am a UK citizen um, just in case anyone's thinking that after Brexit they can throw me out. Uh, <laughs> I uh, was uh, trying to get a teaching job at a time when the demographics meant we had falling roles and there were lots of teachers uh, with uh, priority rights of appointment because they were already in teaching. So I went and did a variety of other jobs and one of them was working as a, a sort of a supervisor on a scheme for unemployable youth. Uh, note that they weren't unemployed, they were unemployable. <laughs> uh, they had no school qualifications. Most of them had left in year 10 or 11. Uh, they had no work habits, they had no work experience. Uh, and indeed, many of them were very much on the fringes of the underworld already. Uh, mm. And one thing I discovered was that quite a number of them had real difficulties with reading, some of them profound. And uh, it really made me realize that the education system as it stood then was just spitting out about a third of the students who went through it with almost nothing after 11 years of education. Mm. And that really changed my attitude so that when I did become a teacher and went into schools, I was thinking about all my students, not just the students like me mm. who had been um, academically successful. Uh, after I'd been teaching for some time now, I had a number of questions about learning and I was really dissatisfied with the level of knowledge that I had Um, and so I applied for and won a scholarship and I did a year on special teaching needs which was uh, just revolutionary and showed me that actually if we are uh, careful enough we can teach kids just about anything and we can assess just about any aspect of learning as long as we are really, really diligent about breaking it all down into its component parts. 
after that, I tried to apply that kind of uh, learning uh, about research and empirical research and evaluating research to actual teaching, uh, both in New Zealand and then latterly in the UK. I taught at two inner London schools for about 10 years, and then two years ago I left the classroom and uh, supported Diane with uh, scaling up thinking reading. That's an amazing scope of experience. Uh, can I ask you do you miss the do you miss the classroom at all? I I'm I miss the students rather than the ridiculous rigmarole that teachers are being put through these days. Mm-hmm. But teaching is just far more stressful and exhausting than it needs to be mm. or than it used to be. Yeah. So I, and I, so I don't miss that side of school, but it's always a joy to go into school and to be talking to students and working with students. Yeah. I bet. They, they are still very rewarding. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Okay. So um, with me, I actually came to teaching much later. My background was uh, banking, secretarial work, and nursing before I embarked on, um, on teaching. And um, I initially started out in uh, primary teaching. I taught year twos for two years. And... In my second year of teaching, I had two boys in the classroom who were struggling with reading. And because I was an NQT, I spoke um, to my uh, tutor teacher um, partway through my second year and um, expressed my concern about the lack of progress that they were making. And her response to me was, Diane, you just have to accept you will always have children who will fail. And I was absolutely gobsmacked at hearing that because as teachers, surely we are responsible for the learning that goes on in our classes. James had already uh, completed this diploma in special teaching needs and he had said to me, you should do this one day, you would really love it. And I'd kind of thought, oh, yes, you know, maybe. But when I had that response from my tutor teacher, I thought, I have to go and do this because I need to find out how I can teach those children. And both James and I would say that professionally, it was the best year of our lives. We were introduced to, I mean, we're going back a a good number of years now, but it was um, an introduction to the research um, in education, how to uh, read the research, how to analyse the research, introduced to... Zig Engelman's direct instruction, uh, introduced to uh, precision teaching, which is not the same as the precision teaching that we've come across here. This is something um, from uh, Carl Binder and others um, in the States, and also applied behavior analysis. And and I'm not talking about, you know, rats and, and, um, and, and so on. But, you know, how to manage behavior, how to look at what motivates um, behavior. And it was such an eye opener. And after I completed that, I went and worked at the secondary school where James was working. And um, uh, we had quite a number of people who had uh, done this postgraduate diploma in special education needs. So it was a a real privilege um, to work there and to be able to put into practice what we had all learned. And, um, you know, just, you know, one example, 
um, each of us who had graduated from this diploma, we became uh, resource teachers for particular mainstream children in the school. And um, in particular, I had two um, young boys with um, Down syndrome, and it was just such a great pleasure to support them while they were mainstreamed. You know, and one thing that can often happen is with uh, children who are different, it's really difficult to, um, for them to be accepted by the mainstream peers. So, I mean, just a very, very simple thing that we did with um, one of these boys was um, to put him on library duty in the library at lunchtime. And so he naturally made friends. You know, it was just a small thing, but it was such an achievement. And um, it was, yeah, it was just lovely working there. But anyway, um, I ended up working as a resource teacher of learning and behaviour. And these were new roles that were set up in New Zealand. And we were itinerant teachers working in clusters of schools, both primary and secondary. And we were to work with children um, who had learning and or behaviour difficulties supporting the, the teacher. So not working directly with the children, but um, supporting um, the teacher in all sorts of different forms. And one thing that I found was there were children who were upper primary, which in New Zealand is year seven, year eight, and um, and at the beginning of secondary school who had failed at reading. Now, in New Zealand, we have something called re reading recovery, which has been exported over here. So all children, uh, all six-year-old children, uh, they are tested and a decision is made whether they uh, uh, go into the reading recovery program. One thing with the reading recovery program is it can it does work for uh, a lot of children at the time, but because of the methodology behind it, uh, the gains are not sustained. So even children who've been through that program, by the time they get to upper primary school, it all starts to fall over. And then, of course, there were the children who missed out altogether. Anyway, um, I needed to uh, have some sort of a program that could be delivered by learning support assistants, but under supervision. So what I did is I started um, looking at what I had learnt on this uh, uh, diploma in special teaching needs. And I put started to put together a program um, that could be delivered one-to-one. Um, -one. And that was really the genesis um, of Thinking Reading. So I did that uh, for about uh, five years and then had the opportunity to go to a secondary school and uh, set up a literacy, and it was numeracy as well, a literacy and numeracy centre and further develop the programme. And then um, after about three years, we moved over here and the same thing happened. I set up a literacy centre in West London and ran that for about three years and then got asked to come to James's school and do the same thing at his school in North London. And what I soon discovered was it was working very, very well, and but it was only affecting the children in those schools. Mm. And we have a, a big problem across the English-speaking world of about 20% of children arriving at secondary school reading well behind their peers. And if we look at disadvantaged children, that actually that number actually rises and it's 40% of children. So we do have a, a, a huge problem. 
And um, so I decided to leave the classroom and see how we could um, go in and teach this program in other schools. But it's um, a little bit difficult when you're a, 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 a very, very small um, person mm-hmm. and, um, you know, to get your voice heard. So we, we had the program, but then we had to develop a training program mm-hmm. and an implementation program. So the program has developed um, more. It's quite a comprehensive program. Um, we take children who are three or more years behind And if children are three or more years behind, they really need to have a one-to-one intervention Mm. because their needs are different from each other. And if you teach children um, in a group, invariably you're going to be teaching some things that that child already knows. Mm. Um, So that's why it does need to be individually targeted. So we're very, very strong on making sure that um, our diagnostic assessment is such that we know exactly what we need to teach. Mm. Um, The children come out of class for three half-hour lessons a week because we want to have minimal impact on curriculum. And it's really important that because they're coming out of class that they make progress as rapidly as possibly. So that's why we uh, the program it's a generic program, but it's able to be targeted um, to meet the needs of um, each individual uh, student so that they're not learning anything that they don't need to learn. And because of the methodology behind the program, they catch up quickly. So we had the program, and uh, but it was a matter of developing an implementation um, program. So that's a big part of what James has done. Mm. Yeah. Um, and. So there's a lot of work uh, across the school, and what we find is that to sort out these problems in schools, senior leaders need to be well briefed yeah. uh, and have a very clear vision of how they're going to achieve it. Uh, so there are certain whole school things that always have to be in place, uh, and then it also needs very much a sense of mission from senior leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, very often we have inquiries from people who are in the classroom or who are middle leaders, um, and when you say to them, uh, it's fine, but you know, you'll know, you need senior leadership support, and they just kind of sigh and go, oh, we're just not there. You know, Their senior leaders are firefighting in other areas and aren't thinking about this. And that's a sad thing because actually if you can address something as basic as reading yeah. – it deals with a lot of other problems. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to to link that into the work you've done in your book, I think there's a really interesting Doug Lemo's review of it that, that and listening to your experiences there, that balance between passion and pragmatism. And I think, mm. you know, when I was reading your book, I know um, you mentioned this at the start, James, but as an English teacher, I'm, I'm quite guilty of uh, talking about how much I love reading to students and how much I want them to read and, you know, kind mm. of promoting reading, as it were. Mm. But the actual mm. kind of research-informed reality of how we can move young people forward with their reading is, for, for both your experience, very much informed by lots and lots of research. And I think that's fascinating mm. and something I'd like to touch a little bit more on. Um, so mm. in, terms of the, in terms of the book then, what was your sort of mission with the book? What did you want to do in terms of translating that experience to... Uh, a wider readership? 
I think mainly it's uh, so that teachers have a better understanding of the problem mm. because in some ways it, it's a hidden problem mm. and, uh, you know, labels, are, you know, applied and excuses are made. But, um, but so education so that they then have a resolve to fix and, you know, to, to address it because it is a solvable problem. You know, so we have these children going through secondary school and, you know, no change is happening yeah. for so many of them. They're coming in, reading well behind their, their peers and, you know, we can be um, sympathetic and, and, and so on, but that's actually not helping them read. Mm. And as far as we're concerned, at secondary school, it's the, you know, the, the, you know, the last chance saloon. They're unlikely to have um, an opportunity to um, to have their reading addressed once they leave secondary school. Mm. So it's so important that it does happen because it, it's life changing. Yeah. You know, you think how often you read. You know, even you know, reading a medicine bottle, bottle, filling in a form, all those things that we just take for granted when we're um, competent readers. But for some of these children, it's it, it, it just it affects every part of their lives. Yeah. And you look at, if you look at behavior in schools, you look at the misbehavior. If I couldn't read, I'd be misbehaving. Yeah. I would be so frustrated. And then you get other children who are the opposite. They just try to shrink into the background, you know, try to become, you know, part of the wallpaper. So you get those two extremes. But for a lot of children, if you fix the, the reading problem, you can eliminate so many behaviour problems. Yeah, absolutely. And it's tra I completely agree. It's tragic, isn't it? It's the sort of invisible members of society who are drifting through life after leaving school without any yes. ability to, you know, forge a path for themselves. Because reading is, as you mentioned so many times in the book, reading is absolutely essential. It's core to, to yes. everything we do. Mm. And I think even now, you know, the experience in, in well, the English schools in particular, but the the amount that sort of ramped up recently in terms of reading yes. expectations mm. on students makes you know conversations like this and, and the dialogue you have in the book even more mm. important I think mm. yes yes it's made the um, the GCSE changes have made the problem more apparent um, and uh, schools of course tend to get interested in solving the problem then because it's affecting GCSE grades yeah. <laughs> and what we're saying is uh, GCSE grades aside, there is a moral responsibility in our, on our system and on our schools Absolutely. that everybody leaves school after 11 years, 10,000 hours of education, able to read. Yeah. Mm. And if we don't know how to teach kids to read in 10,000 hours, then we need to find out. And we're doing something wrong to be to be harsh about it, but I think that's absolutely it. And it's it's the labelling, isn't it? And the sense of, as you mentioned, Anne, and you're you know when you you were talking about how teachers say no, some students are not going to be able to get it, and that mm. that in itself as a statement is is horrifying, really, when we think about the culminative effect of what we should be doing and how we could do it in in the classroom. Absolutely. Um, so we'll start with the, the where we might be going wrong. First of all, as teachers, and I suppose as, as English teachers, the the impetus on us is is even more um, apparent. And I know obviously the, we'll be wanting to drive things across schools, but um, you know, reading expectations in our lessons. And I wonder where teachers might be taking the wrong steps in terms of what they what they're doing in the classroom. If that makes sense, as a question. 
Well, I, I think there are a number of misconceptions about why um, children can't read. I mean, one of the first things is if children haven't learned to read by the time they get to secondary school, well, it's obviously too late. Well, I think we've proven that that's not the case, yeah. um, that you know, we can teach children at secondary mm -hmm. school. And also the idea that um, low intelligence, uh, that low reading achievement equates to low intelligence well, I have. Um, I can remember one uh, boy who I taught, taught, and in year eleven, sorry, year ten, he was reading at a six-year level, and you can imagine the uh, uh, the prognosis, if you like, um, for him. You know, the expectation was, you know, he certainly wasn't going to get any um, any GCSEs reading at that level. Uh, he was born in this country; it wasn't an EAL issue. And what was actually really interesting about him is when we started, the comprehension questions he would get just like that, inferential questions. He was a bright boy. And, you know, he made nine years progress in 13 months and went on to get five A stars to C, wow. including English and maths. Mm -hmm. He went into the sixth form. He became a student leader. And he will have just completed university. That's fantastic. So, you know, there was nothing wrong with his intelligence. It was a teaching problem. Yeah. He just hadn't been taught properly. Yeah. And, you know, the idea, too, that, you know, some people have a processing deficit, which means that, you know, they can't be taught to read. We have taught children to read, and before they have come to the literacy centre, you know, people have said, oh, you'll be lucky. Everything goes in one ear and out the other. And people speak these words over children as to what they are capable of and, you know, and what they're not capable of. Mm -hmm. And it is such a pleasure to turn that on its head and to have children learn to read mm -hmm. and to see the change in their demeanor. Um, you know, you, you can have some children and you think, they are so confident. There's no issue with confidence there. And then at the end of the program, and they say, I'm now confident. And you realize it was just a lot of bravado um, on the front, you know. Mm. But, um, you know, putting, giving um, children reader writers, I understand why they're doing that. But they're not going to be able to have a reader writer with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Do you know, let's not do something like that. Let's actually address the problem. Let's actually teach them to read. And, um, you know, the whole issue over um, overlays and Erlen glasses and, um, you know, it's just it's not necessary. You know, children don't need um, these um, the, the technology. You know, we can jump, we can just um, teach them. And also, you know, we can have low expectations because children can't read. You know, going back to that whole idea, you know, of intelligence. But, um, you know, I, I think we have to have really high expectations and surely being literate is um, a really good expectation to have and, you know, certainly attainable. You know, and sometimes we can um, think that if only we can just get them motivated and then they'll start to read, that actually we find um, things motivating when we can do them. So I think we need to actually teach them to read first 
and then they'll start to enjoy books. Absolutely, and I absolutely. often think of children when we have, you know, drop everything and read and so on, and actually having to sit there and, and read, and it's something that you can't actually do. It's something that's really, really frustrating. It's fine for the children who can read. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you know, being able to read. But if you can't, you know, it's hell. Mm. I think I'd, I'd probably add to that. But, um, it's, it's the systemic acceptance and expectation of failure. Yeah. That we have become accustomed because we think about exams in a normal distribution to then say, you know, 30% of grades will be failing grades and to then say, so 20% of students failing reading is just part of a normal, in inverted commas, mm. distribution. Yeah. Mm. And that word normal is extremely unfortunate because, of course, statistically, we're talking about around a norm, you know, and norming things. But what people start to think it means is, uh, the way it ought to be. And, of course, it isn't the way it ought to be at all. We don't have a normal distribution around breathing, for example, mm. or driver's licenses. You know, we, we say you either can or you can't, mm. um, and it's a, it's a competency-based issue. Uh, and the fact that schools – I mean, I guess the reason I'm raising that is because uh, I know that one of the major objections people have raised with us is, but that's just the bell curve. Mm. And the answer is, in that case, the bell curve's in the wrong place. You know, the bottom end of the bell curve should be above the point where people can read. I completely agree, and it all has that horrible um, impact of just widening chasms in society, doesn't it? That mm -hmm. all these exactly. people are getting more, and even in the place of the drop everything and read systems, the confident readers are getting more confident, mm -hmm. and the people who struggle with reading are are, are falling. And it's, it's yeah. as we said before, it's, it's tragic, I think. Um, mm. So the complexity, and I think your book really opened my eyes to that as well. But the complexity of how to mm. teach our students to read is, mm. is huge. I know I'm asking you to do an almost impossible thing here in terms of summarising some some classroom strategies and some approaches that you've used that have obviously had such a huge impact. So what can we sort of um, parcel up and uh, do in our classrooms? Mm that is going uh, to start to help our students. So I'll, I'll let James actually talk about um, what to do in the classroom yeah. because we actually take a three-tiered approach mm -hmm. so that um, we think, yes, absolutely effective teaching in the classroom for everybody, and that's what James will talk about. And for children who are up uh, around two years behind, you know, small group interventions work really well for them. But for children who are three or more years behind, they really need targeted intervention. So that's my experience with that very targeted intervention. But of course, James's experience is in the classroom. Mm, thank you. And I might unpick. Uh, I might unpick after about that targeted intervention and, and, and what schools sure. can be doing, um, you know, to, to help with those interventions after. Yes. Thank you. Mm. So. I think the two main principles in the classroom are, one, lots of practice. Mm. Uh, we can be tempted to give students less practice because they find reading aversive and, you know, they give us a hard time and so that's a bit punishing for us. So we start to take an easier route that's more entertaining for the students. End of the day, the students who most need practice are getting the least. Yeah. So, so there has to be a non-negotiable level of practice. Um, and I mean, we... Um, fully agree with the Michaela model where they're saying 
you know, they will read something substantive in every mm. single lesson every mm. single day. Mm. Uh, and, and they should, because that's what the people who are successfully getting to university are doing. Um, but the second principle is uh, lots of feedback. If you're just giving them practice and no feedback, it's not much help to the ones who need support. How do you organize a classroom so that readers get feedback? Uh, so for that reason, you know, we talk in the book about pairing readers up uh, and, or putting them in small groups and training them in supportive strategies where they can help each other to work out a word and so on, but, but also just building each other's confidence to take risks and try things. They're much more willing to read with a couple of friends than they are to a whole class, for example. Mm. Uh, you might need to get some advice on uh, pitching the reading material. There, there is no point in just shoving a book that they can't read under their nose and saying, now work with somebody else to read it. They will make very slow progress. Mm. Um, and what's really important is that they're getting some success and that in particular that they are finding that they can learn through reading. In other words, they're finding out interesting and useful stuff. Uh, I think the other thing that underlies all of that is having your classroom as a safe environment. Children have a tendency, uh, as we all know, to ridicule and tease each other. Uh, they are always jockeying for position and if, see, um, having difficulty with reading is seen as a real weakness, and they will be merciless to one another. So students have to expend quite a lot of energy concealing their reading problems, often by misbehavior. And if we're going to expose that by getting them to read a lot, then the classroom has to be a very safe, orderly place, and students have to have very high standards of courtesy towards each other. I know from my own experience, I teach a, a quite a challenging uh, GCSE group, and there's 20 students in there, and they, you know, they do struggle with reading. And I think um, since reading your book, those strategies, particularly this, this idea of reading expectations, so having something in every single lesson that we are reading and unpicking together, yep. um, it, mm. it becomes a sort of journey with the class, doesn't it? Because mm -hmm. mm. they know that they're growing in confidence with reading yes. and, their and their motivation comes from, look yes. at this, we're doing another really challenging yep. piece of reading, you know, and we're yep. grappling through this together and we're having successes with it. Um, yep. And I think that's been such a powerful way of motivating them through content rather than motivating them with, you know, the, mm -hmm. the whole pasture GCSE um, sort of smacking on the head with that concept. I think it's been really mm. powerful. The other mm. thing that you talk a lot about in the book that um, I'd be interested to hear your approaches in that I've used a lot that's worked really well is is just getting students reading out loud and having individual mm. conversations with them. Yes. And I wonder how, how you manage the sensitivity of that with you know with, with students as well. Well, I, I like to run a really quiet classroom. Mm. Um, and so uh, the student doesn't have to read very loud to, for me to hear them. Uh, and so the students might be doing some work and there might be some quiet conversation going on or they might be reading in pairs. Particularly good if you've already got everybody reading anyway. Mm. And then you just come to a student and you say, okay, do you want to just read me this paragraph? And they read you the paragraph. And my experience is that the vast majority of, well, I've never had a student who didn't want to read to me. You know, they want the feedback. They want the encouragement. And it's so great to be able to say, well done. That's really good. And this word here, just read that one for me again. And then you give them a bit of corrective feedback. I think the thing is, uh, 
but it's the way we go about giving feedback that's also really critical. Yeah. You know, like I said, we need to give them lots of feedback. But uh, feedback in the form of, for example, telling them what the word is, is not helpful. Um, and we don't have time to go into all that now. But essentially, teachers need to have skills in segmenting and blending words and teach students to use those. And there, as you say, there's loads in your book that's really positive strategies for that. And I think um, the interesting thing with that technique as well is those invisible readers that we were talking about earlier, mm. the, the students who sort of hide and find the whole process incredibly sort of um, anxiety riddled, mm. those individual mm-hmm. conversations where you're asking students to read and you're reading together, you can unpick so much about where they're finding difficulties and, and yes. what is the aspects right. they need more support with. So mm. in terms right. of scaffolding reading, it's, it's really, really useful and helpful. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And, and, you know, teachers have to know that stuff. But yeah. We make a lot of assumptions, but actually getting the student to read to you can blow a lot of those assumptions out of the water. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, one of the things that um, uh, children who are struggling with reading often do is um, they do whole word guessing. So they get to a word and, you know, they've been taught to um, memorise words as wholes. And that, you know, is an an ineffective strategy. So actually taking them back and getting them to decode through the word is so, so important. Oh, thank you. I think they're, they're really, really helpful strategies. Thank you. Um, Dan, I wonder if I can pick your pick your brain about those those interventions you mentioned and the really, really weak readers that we might have in a class and how the school um, sort of holistically might best support them with, with interventions. Yeah, I think, you know, um, first of all, um, the most important thing is um, assessment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds um, very basic, but it's actually not happening everywhere. I mean, that, you know, where we go into some schools and there is no reading assessment done at all. And sometimes it's on entry and it doesn't happen um, again. So we advocate for having a normed whole school assessment and then um, taking the bottom third um, and actually running another normed assessment as well. Because what happens is some children, when they are assessed, it's just that they couldn't be bothered on the day, do you know? Mm. And there are also children who are very, very good at masking the fact that they can't read. And, you know, we want to make sure that no children actually fall through the, through the cracks. Mm. And um, the only way to – also, a reading test, uh, a normed test – is not telling you whether the problem is decoding, whether it's comprehension, or whether it's both. Mm. And you, we need to know that. And um, so we then take um, another normed test, just with that bottom third. But then following that, we and that eliminates a lot of the children when it's just due to motivation. In fact, you can usually halve the number who were identified with the first test um, due to motivation. And um, and then um, doing a, a one-to-one test, which is more expensive to administer, which is why, you know, it's important to go through those um, stages of screening. And with the one-to-one test, we need to see what their decoding is like. And we also need to check them for comprehension as well. Because uh, some children, their decoding is absolutely fine, but it's comprehension that's an issue. So they need to be in a, in a comprehension group. Um, uh, 
it's really important to make sure that the intervention is targeted for secondary school students. Um, I think that you know you're probably better with that because you've you're you've had um, experience mm. of um, small group interventions mm -hmm. um, in the schools where you have been. Mm -hmm. I think with uh, small group interventions, with any intervention really, we should be looking at fixed time, fast progress, careful assessment to make sure that students are well matched to the intervention, mm. um, and the intervention should be focused on things that make a genuine difference to their reading capabilities. So, for example, if you have a phonics intervention, it will be for students who are a couple of years behind with their decoding skills. Yeah. If you have a comprehension group, students who are two to three years behind and who need to work on comprehension strategies. You might have a group who are doing spelling, uh, and you might do something like spelling with morphographs, where you're also building students' vocabulary, and as a result, you're also building their background knowledge. So there is a whole range of things you can do. The main thing is that you're doing it in order to achieve an outcome. Just doing it is not the outcome. Yeah. And so often in schools, until recently anyway, the expectation was... Uh, here, here are these students who are weak, and this is what we've done for them. And that was as far as the school went. And very often when we ask for results, most of the time actually, when we go into schools and ask for the results of the interventions they're currently running, mm. they simply don't have any. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And also I think we need to have the expectation that the children are going to end up reading at their chronological age. Mm. Yeah. And uh, too often I've seen uh, children who have been taken out of MFL, you know, with the argument, well, what's the point in them doing MFL if they can't read? But the expectation is that right the way through, they're always going to be in an intervention, that they're never going to actually catch up. And I had the experience of a girl who had been in, a, in another um, reading intervention, and uh, then she uh, came to the literacy centre and she was uh, with thinking reading. She hadn't been going to Spanish. She came to thinking reading. She caught up completely, and she was ready to go back into class. Mm. She'd missed two years of Spanish. So they said, well, could you keep her? but she can already read. Mm, yeah. You know? You know, what you're talking about is about nuances and about skills and about incisive teaching and reading that mm. I think the training is, is often the issue within within schools mm -hmm. that, that people yes. think that if we give them more to read, if we do more comprehension practice, mm -hmm. you know, yes. then they will get better. But it doesn't mm. happen by default, I think is what you're saying, that it needs to be really, really specific in terms of Absolutely. these interventions that take place. Um, professor Greg Brooks, who's emeritus professor from Sheffield University, every three or so years, he puts out a publication called What Works for Children and Young People with Literacy Difficulties. And he evaluates the data from different reading interventions and gives them a grade as to whether they're useful, um, I think, substantial or remarkable as far as the progress so I think you know it's really important to look at the data of mm. different interventions before um, they're implemented because um, yes interventions 
you have to pay for them. And so there is the cost um, um, issue, but it's also the cost to the student. We're yeah. taking them out of class and it's a cost to the student. So if they're going to catch up completely, then that's wonderful. But if they're just going to miss out on so many hours of schooling and never catch up, well, I'd question whether that is cost effective. I think the other thing is that when you invest in an intervention, uh, you have to be really serious about doing it well. Yeah. Uh, and too often uh, I've come across people going, well, we, we uh, do Intervention X, but we put our own twist on it, or I, you know, I've adapted it for my students' needs. I've and, used my professional judgment, hmm. which means I've used my intuition. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, as a result, I've seen um, a very sensible phonics program uh, completely demotivating students to the point where some of them actually went backwards, hmm. you know, how do you do that? That takes a fair bit of work, I would suggest. Yeah. Um, so, so when we intervene, uh, as I say, we need to be uh, quite specific about what we're aiming to achieve. We need mm. to be quite clear on how we're going to measure whether we've achieved it. And we need to be ruthless in deciding whether the problem was the intervention or the fact that we didn't implement it properly. Mm. And that's really important to know. Mm. So you need to take data on how on the fidelity of your own intervention not just on the student's progress, but actually on our own teaching as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What you've done really helpfully there, we've got a roadmap for reading improvement. We've got what we can do in our own classrooms and take more ownership of. And then we've yes. got a helpful sort of direction about how intervention can be can be more specific and more nuanced for students i wonder yes. if i can as a sort of as a last as a last um topic uh, as, as sort of noble and well-intentioned english teachers we, we start the year on a on a sort of reading for pleasure mission with trying yes. to inspire our students to, to to drop the ipads and read as much as possible and um, mm. i wonder in your you know your experience in in driving forward reading if you've come across any any nuggets, any golden pieces of wisdom about um, just generally inspiring? And I know this this is this is lofty, and this is almost the <laughs> juxtaposition of everything you've been talking about about you know data informed improvements in reading. But yeah. obviously, we want young people to read more. Absolutely. And, and how do we do that? <laughs> well, one thing that we've um, done with the thinking reading graduates is you know posed with that very question. Okay, we've taught them to read. How do we keep them reading? So one thing I have trialed in a couple of schools is the graduate reading group. Oh, and I had um, an LSA who, uh, who ran it. She was an ex-teacher, and she was really good. So um, the children would just come for um, half an hour once a week, and during the week they had a reading log. I mean, we didn't monitor it, you know, and just keeping a note of, you know, how many words that how many pages that they'd read and they could, you know, compete with each other if they wanted. But it was just keeping them a little bit accountable. But the main part of it was when we first started off, um, the woman who was taking it, she introduced a book that she was reading, but they took turns. So the hope was that they would inspire each other with what they were reading. Mm. But, of course, one of the big things is once you get um, somebody reading um, a book that's part of a series, that hooks them in. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, you know, Harry Potter and, you know, Alex Ryder and, um, you know, all sorts of books like that. You know, it's just finding something that's going to hook them in. Yeah. You know, 
anything, anything just to get them started, to get that, you know, just to get that hook. But um, series are really good. We've actually put together and it's on the website um, a list of uh, fiction series. And from the whole range, you know, there are some really old series there, there right through to, you know, much more um, modern ones. But we've been working on putting together a series of non-fiction books as well, which is taking a little bit longer. I think um, schools can make a big difference by having an actual canon and saying to students, okay, in Key Stage 3, you're going to read, you know, 50 of these 100 books mm. or whatever. And uh, one thing we did at, uh, at one of my schools was uh, we, made, we made a reading list, but the challenge for the staff was, to create a sun headline for each book. Brilliant idea. So in other words, you had to you had to sell it in a memorable four or five word phrase. Mm, yeah. You know, like um, uh, I, if I try and think of something while I'm doing a podcast, I'll probably not uh, be a long <laughs> silent. Um, but uh, but I, I do think that traditionally, one of the key roles of the English teacher was to match students with books. Yeah. And to do that, you needed two things. You needed to know your students really well, and you needed to have read a lot of books. Mm. The problem these days is that we don't have time to get to know our students. We don't have time to read a lot of books. Um, and we certainly have very little time to actually talk to students about books. Mm. And I think that we need to get back to an education that is more civil and that is less frantically focused on scrabbling through the GCSE curriculum and that's much more about the dignity of the individual and dignifying them with a good education. Yeah. And it's the conversations about books um, that are really sometimes life-changing for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was thinking um, a little while ago about the, the power of that. I mean, Roald Dahl tells a lovely story. You know, here's a guy who's changed the reading of millions of children. And that's all because he had a, a lady um, who was a, his English teacher and she said, try reading this. You know, she was talking to him after class and said, try reading this. And he read it and the scales fell from his eyes and suddenly reading meant, mattered to him. Mm. You know, and that's the light bulb moment that all of us are teaching for. Yeah. That's what yeah. we want. Absolutely. You know, we want to yeah. get to that bit of that kid. And we're probably not going to get to all the kids we teach, but if we can all do it with some of them, It'll make a really big difference. And it's all about conversations. I had a lecturer at Teachers College who said, if you want to teach English, then you need to be reading one young adult book a week because you need to have a huge store of knowledge about books in order to talk to students about books. And I think that model of English teaching is gone now. But we can we can do it. I think that's mm. a, a brilliant call to arms uh, to, to finish <laughs> with, you know, this uh, making reading matter for young people. And I think you know yeah. the, the, that's the sort of making it matter and making it um, making that journey that young people go on easier and more scaffolded for them is what sort yes. of resonated through this this conversation. Yes. And and also I think as well how absolutely vital it is and how vital our our jobs as teachers are in terms of helping them on on that journey. And I think mm. you do you know you're doing incredible work with young people. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a, a real privilege to speak to you about it today. Thank you so much both for, for coming on. Thank you, Jamie. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. 
dark winter months often call out for some solace and inspiration. And listening to James and Diane has certainly reminded me of the vital journey and importance of what we do in our classrooms as English teachers. What they clearly are is hugely passionate and focused on the evidence behind effective reading strategies and determined to share that as widely as possible. For me, what I hope to do more of in my own classroom is continuing to provide more opportunities for students to practice reading. And I really like that idea of having a challenging piece of reading at the core of every single lesson. I also like James's notion of having a quieter classroom, a space to facilitate more opportunities for quiet paired reading between students. What also resonated for me was the need for more conversation with individual students about reading. The need to hear them read on a one-on-one basis and the need to make more time for those book conversations that should be at the heart of effective English teaching. To go that way more to try and inspire young people to invest more in reading. The wider implications surrounding interventions and giving it structure I think we're also really important in that conversation. And also I think the more informed we are as individual practitioners about these interventions, the more likely we are able to influence the culture of interventions in our own schools. After all, there can be no more greater moral imperative for us than to make sure we are supporting our students with their reading abilities. Thank you again to James and Diane. I would highly recommend their book, Thinking Reading, which is an excellent roadmap for all of the reading strategies we've explored in this episode and provides much more detail than we've been able to unpick. Thank you again for listening. Next month, I'm very excited to be joined by Andy Tharby, author of Making Every English Lesson Count, who'll be talking about his thoughts on what makes effective English teaching and his new book, which sounds fascinating, The Art and Science of Teacher explanation.